Hi, this is Christiana Hale, author of Deeper Heaven, a reader's guide to C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy. You're listening to Pints with Jack. I think the libretto is just stunningly good. It brought tears to my eyes in places. It will be terrific. I very heartily congratulate you. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 30, Paralandra, The Opera, After Hours with Professor Judith Wolfe and John Marr. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. And this season, we read through Out of the Silent Planet, and we will be getting to its sequel, Paralandra, in the not-too-distant future. But I thought it would be a good time to have an episode on Paralandra. Not the book, but the opera. And that's what's being described in today's opening quotation, which comes from a letter written by C.S. Lewis. Now, I first discovered the existence of Paralandra the Opera when I was in Oxford a few years ago. I was visiting the Oxford Oratory with my then-girlfriend, Marie, and we were looking through their G.K. Chesterton collection since at the time they had all of his books and many of his personal effects. But in the library, there were a few boxes in the corner, and I wandered over to them and started looking through them. And in one of them, I came across a flyer for the opera. And I was curious, and I asked a couple of people about it, but I didn't do much more. But then last season, Dr. Don W. King mentioned it again, and that set me on a journey to find out more. And so in today's episode, we're going to find out more about this opera. We're going to look at its history, the different productions of it, and we're also going to listen to some of its music and discuss it. And in order to do this, I'm going to need not just one, but two guests, Judith Wolfe and John Marr. So first of all, Professor Judith Wolfe, she holds a BA in English Literature and Interdisciplinary Honours Studies from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, an MPhil in English Literature, MA in Theology, and a DPhil in Theology all from Oxford. She has been a member of the School of Divinity at St. Andrews University since 2014, and has intimate involvement in a production of Paralandra the Opera. Professor Judith Wolfe, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you for having me. Well, as I said, I don't just have one guest today, but two. And my second is Professor John Marr. John is a music professor at Santa Ana College in California, but he's also a listener, a longtime patron supporter, and a member of the C.S. Lewis Reading Group, which I used to run in San Diego. <laughs> well, and I, and I certainly miss my favorite Englishman being so close <laughs> to me. So yes, Wisconsin's not quite as accessible for me. Yeah. Well, since Professor Wolf teaches at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and it's rather early here in La Crosse, Wisconsin, Today, I have poured myself a very strong cup of Scottish breakfast tea. What are you two drinking? I'm drinking coffee, Dully. It's still before five o'clock, even here in Scotland. But one of my four younger brothers is a Carmelite monk in the wilderness of the Rocky Mountains, where they produce a coffee called Mystic Monk Coffee. And ah. he supplies me when I go and visit him in the Rockies. <laughs> How about you, John? Well, thanks to you, I learned that C.S. Lewis drank Thai food tea, so I'm having a nice cup of Thai food tea because it is, it is very early here in Southern California. Excellent choice. And yes, thank you for getting up at the crack of dawn. Cheers. 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 Okay. So, listeners, this is how I'm hoping today's episode is going to go. 
We're going to divide it into two parts. And in the first part, John and I are going to ask Professor Wolf questions about Paralandra, the opera, its history, the various productions that have been put on. And then in the second part, John is going to be in the driver's seat, because there we're going to talk more specifically about the music itself. But before we get to that, I first came across Professor Wolf's work oof, quite some time ago, when I picked up a copy of C.S. Lewis and the Church, which was a collection of essays she co-edited and which were presented to Walter Hooper. So Professor Wolf, before we start talking about Paralandra the opera, what's your own history with the Inklings, Lewis and Paralandra the book? That's a good question. I think like most young people, I encountered Lewis sometime during my childhood or early teenage years and was enthralled by him. But it took me until I studied theology in Oxford to realize that he wasn't simply saying what every sane Christian would say, uh, that he had a distinctive voice, that he had a distinctive theological vision. And I think it was then that I became interested in uh, trying to work out more academically what that consisted in, what its implications were, what its presuppositions were, uh, and started working on Lewis in the context mainly of the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society uh, as an academic subject, which, of course, as you know, in Oxford is entirely beyond the pale. Uh, he is not um, a subject of polite conversation in the senior common rooms. But, um, <laughs> but uh, we, we, you know, we, we created a, a, a group of people and a conversation around him that has since expanded, I think, even in Oxford. Uh, and it's good to see that he's being treated, of course, by people like Rowan Williams or um, Alistair McGrath. Okay. And how did you first discover this operatic version of Paralandra? Gosh, so this was when I was uh, secretary of the C.S. Lewis Society in Oxford, and we were looking for speakers, and we had heard vaguely that there was this opera. And so uh, the president, Brendan Wolfe, who later became my husband, and I contacted <laughs> the executor of Donald Swan's estate, Leon Berger, and asked him whether he knew anything about this and whether he could come and talk to us about it. And he said not only did he know about it, Swan had sat with him more or less on Swan's deathbed explaining what had become a, a cut-up version of a handwritten score and libretto, which he hoped somebody would put back together at some point. And I can tell you more about why it was all cut up uh, in a little while. But he came and talked to us about it, and he played a few excerpts which had been recorded all the way back in 1963 um, by an amateur around Donald Swan's piano. Um, and several of us had tears in our eyes from one of the songs, uh, which is called No Man Can Shorten the Way. Uh, and we said, we have to do this. And so um, we, we ended up taking a year or more uh, to reconstruct what by then had really been a, a disfigured series of, or a collection of fragments uh, in Donald Swan's attic and built it back together and, and did the performances. Wow. Well, can we rewind the clock and can you tell us how this opera came to be in the first place? And actually, I should note, listeners, we're going to be talking about Paralandra the Opera, so there may well be spoilers for Paralandra the Book ahead. So if you haven't read it and you care about spoilers, go read that book and then return to this podcast. But with that said, Professor Wolf, how did this opera come to be? And also, what was Lewis's involvement with it? All right, so the opera came about, I don't know how familiar people in other countries are with the comic musical duo Flanders and Swan who were uh, very famous, very successful in the UK. Uh, 
um, in the in the post-war years, 1950s, 1960s. Uh, they were fabulously funny. And Donald Swan was the composer and pianist of the duo. Michael Flanders was the singer uh, and possibly librettist. And in their success as a comic duo, Donald Swan, the composer and pianist, felt increasingly that he really enjoyed this, but also wanted to make it in the serious music world. And he decided to write an opera. And he had been reading C.S. Lewis's Paralandra and thought this would be a magnificent subject for an opera. And he wrote to an old chum of his, David Marsh, uh, a librettist, and said, hey, do you want to do this? We'll have to get permission from the old Eldil, of course, um, <laughs> but, you know, worth trying. And uh, Marsh was very enthusiastic. So they wrote to Lewis and... Um, we then have a letter from Swan to Marsh saying the old Eldel was indeed keen. Uh, and so they set out on, on this, um, with Lewis's enthusiastic support, as you, as you saw from the letter that he wrote later on. It was an interesting collaboration because Marsh in particular was a pacifist and had real trouble with Lewis's depiction of ransom killing somebody. And, um, if you listen to the opera, you'll see that, that, um, that part is treated quite interestingly. But, um, they kept meeting with Lewis, um, discussing the libretto, discussing the ideas. Uh, Lewis came to them once with his own little bit of uh, libretto, a sort of dialogue for the lady and the king, which uh, they had to reject in the end. But Swan said, we couldn't fit it in. I couldn't get used to his style. It was too awkward. He was rather fed up with that. Uh, in fact, I think he would have liked to write his own libretto. And that's really interesting, of course, because actually, as we know, Lewis started Paralandra as, uh, as a narrative poetry. Um, we have an early fragment, which is, I think, the earliest bit of the novel, what became the novel Paralandra in poetic form, which goes like this. The floating islands, the flat golden sky at noon, the peacock sunset, tepid waves with the land sliding over them like a skin. The alien Eve, green-bodied, stepping forth to meet my hero from her forest home. Proud, courteous, unafraid, no thought infirm alters her cheek. You can see that this doesn't lend itself very well to a libretto, but you can also see how Lewis would have been excited. And so they had, um, they finished the opera. Uh, they performed it around Swan's Piano in 1963, just before Lewis's death. Lewis was enthusiastic and they thought that they had a hit on their hands. And so Swan then, Donald Swan then financed three concert performances in Oxford and Cambridge and in London in 1964, which received mixed reviews. And he considered cutting it a little. It was over three hours long. Um, the reviews were mixed because he was very much in the old sort of melodic vein, uh, rather than being atonal and progressive. Except when it came to Weston, actually, the character of Weston gets all this atonal stuff. It then turned out a few years later that Curtis Marsh, Lewis's agent, had sold the performance rights to the novel to Hollywood. No. And Lewis had not been savvy enough in copyright issues to exclude the libretto and the opera version of Paralander from the general rights to the novel. And therefore, for the rest of Swan's life, uh, his own opera was embargoed Oof. because uh, Hollywood had the performance rights and he just couldn't get it performed. And that's why he cut up the, uh, the, you know, the handwritten score, uh, in an attempt to get excerpts of it performed because he couldn't get the whole thing performed. And so, uh, when he died, there was this stack of papers in his attic, all cut up. And he was sitting with the person who became the executor of his estate, trying to explain to him how these would be put back together in order to have the whole thing again. So in the end, when we performed it, we hadn't actually managed to get everything back together, but the musicians played with these taped up <laughs> scores um, on their podiums. 
And um, the reason that we were able to do that was that by that time, although Swan was long dead, the rights had also lapsed. Uh, Hollywood hadn't made use of them. And so it was now, again, performable, but everybody had forgotten about it. Well, one of the questions that I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to be asking themselves at the end of this episode is, is it possible to listen to this opera today? Uh, yes and no. We staged two concert performances in Oxford, one at uh, Keble College Chapel and one at the Sheldonian Theatre. And um, a poet and indeed the last graduate student of C.S. Lewis's uh, funded a professional recording of it. So a professional recording exists. However, uh, the Swan Estate and the Marsh Estate have not given permission for it to be distributed commercially. And so we have a limited edition of, I think, about 30 CDs, which we are allowed to give to people for research purposes, but which we're not allowed to sell. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And yep. I'm a very happy recipient <laughs> of one of those copies. So thank you so much, uh, David. All right. And you've You've covered a lot of this before, but is there anything else you can tell us about Swan's inspiration to compose the opera? And I do agree, it is a good, out of um, Lewis's works, it's a very good one to set to opera because there's not a lot of action that happens. And most um, operas have relatively short narratives, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, it's very interesting that on the one hand, Lewis says somewhere, I think in a conversation with Kingsley Amos, that this is the most operatic of his novels. Um, and so absolutely, especially in the final great dance, you know, you can just see that done operatically with uh, multiple voices and so forth. And yet, on the other hand, actually, Swans and Marsh's opera doesn't really make use of that element. It doesn't have that final chorus in it. It's quite different in tone in many ways. So that is an, that is an odd thing, but it is certainly, uh, it certainly lends itself to, to operatic treatment and particularly to a sort of crossover between on the one hand, sort of comic opera, opera buffa in the first bits with uh, with Lewis and Hayward, and then rising to a much more epic uh, pitch later on. I think Swan wanted to write it. Actually, I have a quote from him here. Let me read this to you. He gives a very strong rationale. He says, Paralandra contains one of Lewis's searching portrayals of paradise, of the true world that he felt in his bones was ours, but from which we had been disinherited not only mythically through Adam, but daily through each one of us. I wrote the work under the spell of it, and with the conviction that if we did not have a glimpse of paradise, we are living without a limb, without an eye, without a sense, whichever metaphor you care to choose. Hmm. That's wonderful. It's beautiful, isn't oh, it? That's lovely. Yeah. And then um, I think you, you've already answered this, but I just wanted to uh, reiterate from what I understand from what you said earlier. Uh, C.S. Lewis would actually have heard, he would have heard part of this on piano, uh, performed That's by right. Swan. Is that, is that correct? Did he, ever see any, did he ever see any um, staged portion of this? Or has this, uh, has this opera ever been staged? Because you mentioned concert performances in England back in the 60s, and I know it was performed in New York. So Swan wrote a piano score. Uh, he then commissioned an orchestration from Max Saunders, who was a longtime collaborator, who wrote an orchestration for a 35-piece opera which was then used with professional singers uh, at the Guildhall in Cambridge, the Oxford Town Hall and the Mermaid Theatre in London for three performances in 1964. Uh, staging would have been prohibitively expensive, so it wasn't staged at that time. In 1969, Swan tried uh, in an attempt to make this into a sort of quasi-oratorio that wasn't 
closely enough based on Paralandra to come under the copyright issues. He did a much shortened version with students from uh, Bryn Mawr College in Haverford, which was staged. And we have some pictures from that staging. And they're very odd because, as you can imagine, the characters are meant to be nude. So they are wearing these strange full body suits in green, which really don't look... I mean, they look quite distracting in a sort of, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure that it really gained much by the staging. And I'm not sure that Swan ever really thought through the implications of staging this. <laughs> All right. And I believe, okay, that actually answers my next question. And and I was going to actually ask that if they did sta- stage it, you know, how, you know, the, the staging, blocking, costuming, et cetera, because um, it wouldn't be the first opera with nudity because there actually are, so there are, there are a few operas that do have nudity and sometimes nudity is actually added in, but um, it can be a bit of a dodgy prospect, but it sounds like that that was kind of their solution were these kind of green spandex. Legal perhaps. Terms, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Under, yeah. Understood. <laughs> okay. And then um, now I've heard the, the 2009 performance that David graciously sent me is the, is that um, version, there's quite a bit of narration. Was that originally part of the opera or was it added in because it wasn't staged? Because a lot of the narration would be superfluous. Like he says, they fight, which if we were watching it, we would say, okay, these guys are going at it hammer and tongs. Absolutely. Well, it's actually even more radical than that. So the 2009 version was about, what, two hours long, two and a bit. The original opera is three hours. And as I say, we haven't actually reconstructed the entire thing. So there are still bits and pieces of scoring on fragments that have not been reincorporated, partly because uh, it would have been prohibitively long and expensive and we were on the timeline. And so actually, the narrations are the bits where there would be more music and sometimes more singing which are not there at the moment. So there's a challenge for the future. You mentioned that the um, players played with like taped together scores. Was there any attempt to actually put this into like a notation um, software like Finale or Sibelius? I'm just curious because that, that would have been available in 2009 and it's relatively easy to do now. Yep. So we have the um, singing score for the choir in Sibelius, but mm. not the full orchestral score. Okay. All right. Well, if you need help, and if I have a lot of time. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Thank and then, you. and you kind of already answered this um, earlier, but I, my biggest question, because I, I listened to the opera and of course I have my own opinions of it. And I, and I, you know, it's, it's, it would have been different had I composed it, of course. Um, but regarding um, Marcus Libretto, do we know why um, the most libretto portion, the Blessed Be He adulations near the end were not included? But you may have answered this with um, C.S. Lewis's attempt at the libretto. Yes. So two things. One, they made it a point of honor in the end not to include any actual lines lifted directly from the novel. That just became a thing. Secondly, Marsh was not a Christian, and he interpreted the entire thing in a more humanist, pacifist way. And so he, I don't think, felt very close to that concluding chorus, Mm -hmm. which is a great shame for us, obviously. I mean, you know, it it would have been great. And so I think, you know, that that is really where the opera loses most is in those passages that are most that are so important to Lewis that Marsh simply doesn't have any um, spiritual connection to. On the other hand, I must say that what I regard as the best portion of the opera, which is the, El- the, the Eldil coming and speaking to Ransom before he kills Weston with this really haunting treble song, No Man May Shorten the Way. That's entirely Marsh. 
and that is that is exquisite i think mm-hmm. agreed yes because uh, when i first read paralander i thought oh this would be wonderful to to set to you know music there and um whom should interested opera companies schools churches etc contact if they want to stage the opera um, i've written the swan estate because <laughs> i've written the swan estate asking about the libretto mm-hmm. and the score and i never heard back and i'm happy to pay for both well, it is it is the Swan Estate who would have to be contacted. Um, I think they are deliberately not very responsive, and so probably going through well, me really. I mean, I'm 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 the one who who dealt with them uh, originally. Um, would would probably be the best. I would be I would be very very keen for the opera to you know to, to be revitalized. I think it's a mixed piece of work, but part of it is a wonderful piece of work, and um, I think if the funding can be found. There would be no no real impediment, right? And that that's the thing too. And it, it's interesting what you said about you know when the opera was composed and whatnot there, because the thing is, you're correct. That was that style of music was considered very old fashioned at the time, and it would not really where where music was. But then, you know, I when David contacted me, I just went through the Wikipedia article on operas in the '60s because I really can't think of any, and the the one the one. The, the next one after that that's really big would be um, Einstein on the Beach by Philip Glass, which was written in 76. But the thing is, is that the out of all the operas I read about written and composed in the 60s, one, maybe two are ever performed. So and I think this is just as good as, you know, those other two. So, yeah, I agree. I'm curious, do you guys know of any other musical adaptations which have been attempted based on Lewis's works? I'm aware of a musical version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Friend of the show, Brittany White, she's been involved with one production of that at least. And actually, I was in Chicago with my wife this past month to watch Bareface, which is a ballet adaptation of Till We Have Faces. And actually, I think that episode is going to release just before this one. But at the time, I remember thinking, you know what? This would be a fantastic opera. Well, I've I I've have attempted and I'm still sort of half attempting a, a theatrical version of Till We Have Faces, but not a musical one. But I think it, it's a it's a remarkably theatrical book as well, and uh, mm. would be really wonderful on stage. And I'd love to see the uh, balletic version. That sounds fascinating. Donald Swan wrote, of course, wrote Tolkien songs as well. I mean, to Tolkien fans, Donald Swan is best known for his lead versions of some of Tolkien's poems, particularly Bilbo's last song. But I don't think that he wrote, that he put any of Lewis's poems to music. One of Lewis's poems was, of course, put to music by Miller, Paul Miller, for the royal wedding a few years ago. Uh, Love's Warmest Tears, is that right? Mm-hmm. And the other one I can think of is Phil Keggy, who's done As the Ruin Oh, Falls. yes, of course. That's right. That's right. Um, but nothing larger scale that I can think of. John, do you know of anything? Well, actually, I'm trying to chase something down here on the West Coast. So um, I have um, I have a I've studied a type of um, musical training called ORF or FF, but it was a it's just kind of a way of teaching music as a general subject rather than a pullout. I was in Vegas at a conference back in uh, 2002, and I saw in the newspaper there was a um, an oratorio composed for the screw tape letters. <laughs> and so I'm trying to chase that That's down funny. right now. Um, the composer is um, Carol H. Bland. 
uh, Blanton. And I'm, I've contacted somebody in the College of Southern Nevada, and I'm still trying to chase that down. I know she's, she's still around. Um, the director has since retired. Um, it was produced at that, at that college. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to find that because I really would like to, um, see if they're, again, like a score, excerpt, anything. And it's one of those great regrets because at the time, I didn't see it when I was in Vegas because my uh, children were with me and they were very, very young at the time. I just couldn't leave them, you know, <laughs> with their, with their mother. But that would be the, that's the, that's the one I'm trying to chase down right now. I think it'd be uh, fun to find that. Oh, do let me know if you find that. I'd be interested. Of course. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to say about the history of this production before we move into part two and listen to some of the music and have a chat about it? No, I can't think of anything else. Um, that, I mean, the, to some extent, this really came about haphazardly. Um, if we hadn't heard that very poorly recorded excerpt at a C.S. Lewis Society meeting, we would not have ventured down that long journey. And had I not just had uh, a baby boy, um, we would have not have done it either. And so in a sense, the fact that it came about is really wonderful, but also has clear limitations imposed by those conditions. Um, I hadn't produced anything on that scale before. Uh, my co-producer, who, as I say, later became my husband, uh, hadn't either. And we had the great advantage of being in Oxford, where there were professional orchestras that could be hired. Mm. We had the great advantage of Donald Swan's executor and uh, a conductor uh, from London who had worked closely with Donald Swan being on board and being able to source professional singers from the London area. Uh, and we had the advantage of a musical director from Modlin College being willing to train the choir. But really, it was very much, uh, you know, a ragbag of uh, talent and enthusiasm and willingness that brought about these two wonderful, but nevertheless, quite limited performances. Um, and it would be wonderful uh, if if this could blossom into something larger uh, that did more justice to the work that it is. So thus far, we've spoken about the history of the operatic adaptation of Peralandra. Now it's time to dive into the music itself. And since I know relatively little about opera, I thought I'd kick things off with a quotation from Lewis, which comes from a letter which he wrote in March of 1956 to Mrs. R.E. Halvorsen. One must first distinguish the effect which music has on people like me, who are musically illiterate, and get only the emotional effect, and that which it has on real musical scholars, who perceive the structure and get an intellectual satisfaction as well. And so while I have attended a few operas, I think it's safe to say that I am very much a novice when it comes to this stuff. So I'm pretty much going to be handing it over to you two for most of the rest of the episode. Uh, but I did think that we should begin with a novice question about this genre of music. So I actually have two questions. What is opera and why do people like it? <laughs> well, you're lucky to have in the room representatives of both of Lewis's types. Uh, I'm the musically illiterate person who only gets emotional enjoyment out of opera. And John is the <laughs> literate person who also gets intellectual satisfaction. Too kind. So um, I'll, make a, I'll make a quick start and then I'll hand over to John. Um, opera is essentially uh, the longer standing and uh, more respectable cousin of musical theatre. Uh, it's, uh, it's happened for a long time and therefore has important canons, um, both of how it's done and of the works that are performed. But essentially opera is, uh, is musical theatre that's performed through composed 
So they sing all the time uh, with an orchestra, without any amplification, which means that the voices of opera singers have to be very strong, which is how you get the, the famous sort of vibrato that you hear in their voices. Um, but opera tells stories of any scale from the very intimate to the very grand and public and epic. And it kind of, in a way like a novel, breaks down the barrier between inside and outside, between the external and the internal. It allows emotions to be expressed publicly um, and to be expressed in music in such a way that the communication or the expression of the emotion is in a way also their fulfillment, uh, especially expressions of uh, desire or fear or love in music are done in such a way that the audience gets caught up in them. This is really the sort of emotional impact that Lewis is describing. Um, so you're in this world, you find yourself surrounded by this world where, where emotion is radiant and public and alive and you can be drawn into it. And there's really no experience like it. I found opera when I was, I think, four years old. I heard the magic flute for the first time and I got hooked on it. And um, I've, I've loved it ever since, I suppose. I graduated from Mozart to the Italians and then to Wagner. And they really, these operas create whole worlds that you can get to know. But then once you know them, you sort of inhabit them and you get to explore them again and again through different productions. Oh my, that's a wonderful answer. Okay, now that is very hard to follow up there, <laughs> Judith. But <laughs> I would add from, from a uh, historical perspective, yes, it's interesting because it is the oldest continuous art form. And it's been, it started in 1600 with uh, Jacobo uh, Perry's um, setting Eurydice. We had the first masterpiece in 1609 with Monteverdi's L'Orfea uh, of the Orpheus myth. And it's been going strong ever since. Um, and I'm going to actually steal this from Robert Greenberg, who's uh, Great courses are quite good. And let me just say my music 101 classes have gotten a lot better since I've started listening, stealing from him. But he says <laughs> a opera, and uh, I would change it maybe one word, he goes, a drama. It could be a comedy. It could be a farce. As Judith said, it could be any kind of story, which combines soliloquy, dialogue, scenery, and action, and continuous or nearly continuous music, the whole always greater than the parts. And I love what she said, that it is an entire world. And the um, what he alludes it to, and what I do think is is um, correct, he alludes it to like television. Uh, in the early days, especially uh, for that 17th century in Italy, it was huge. It was everywhere. Not all of like television. There's not a lot of it that's great. That was great. Even now, there's not a lot of it that has really made its way into the canon. Um, the interesting thing about that, what she said about emotion, is right on the money. And the what I love about opera is for the first time in the history of Western music, you are getting internalized first person, this is how I feel. Prior to that, Western music did not address that. You know, and, you know the wonderful stuff from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, uh, rarely was that in a drama, you wouldn't have this first person point of view outside of like courtly, let's say courtly music. But with opera, you get these you know big worlds and there are different kinds of opera and people always say oh i don't like it well why well i saw a TikTok, and well that that's not opera i mean you need to actually get into the theater <laughs> with the musicians and experience it and that is opera um I, you know i've known about it i mean i've known bits and pieces but um my parents weren't really into it so i started attending it in my 20s and and i just i just love it now why do we like it because it it 
because like I said, it's that first person point of view that we can really get behind. So, uh, you know, like when Orpheus, you know, tells the, you know, I'm going to defy the gods and everyone else to go down and rescue my Eurydice. Um, we can, we can relate to that. And also, I did want to say that there are all sorts of options. So for instance, I had the same thought. So when my children were born, I thought, well, okay, it'd be cool to take them to opera, but um, you know, you're not going to, you know, getting them to sit through the, you know, four and a half hours of sex. That is Tristan and Isolde by Wagner. Maybe not the best idea at first. <laughs> so the first opera I took my uh, children to was uh, by one of your countrymen uh, there, David. Uh, have you heard of Gavin Bryars? Mm, it's an no. excellent, a wonderful modern composer. He wrote a work, and I don't believe it's been released anywhere, called The Paper Nautilus. And it was performed at the Long Beach Aquarium. And it's non-narrative, and it's kind of these tableaus for a kind of a chamber orchestra with a, with a couple of pianos and some strings, a little bit of percussion, and some video projection. And they loved it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And it was interesting to, to take my kids to this, and they really liked it. I took um, my youngest to go see, and another composer, I hope, have you heard of Michael Nyman by any chance? Mm -hmm. uh, have Fair you enough. seen uh, or Gattaca or the piano? He did the I've, soundtrack. Seen, I've seen both of those. He's yeah. done the soundtrack. Oh, those. yes. No, now and I remember the name. Yeah. yeah, I do believe Nyman is, I, my, I, Nyman is very underrated in my opinion, but we saw uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, which was uh, based <laughs> upon uh, it was a, he was a neurologist by the name of Oliver Sacks. He um, was treating a professor with musical aphasia. And basically he, all his logical, the mathematical uh, facilities, they, he maintained them, but like he couldn't tell, like he couldn't recognize faces anymore. He couldn't tell you what a glove was anymore. He would say, oh, you can't have a glove because I see a continuous membrane with five distinct chambers. And I asked and I, I said, well, what do you think of the opera? And he's all like, oh, you know, I felt so bad when the, um, when you know, like his wife realized, you know, he didn't recognize her anymore. So I think opera just hits us. And it's odd because I've taken my kids to actually see most of the modern opera. So we haven't, they haven't seen Mozart or, you know, Puccini or Wagner, but they've seen a bunch by Philip Glass. We've seen a bunch by, you know, Gavin Breyers or um, John Adams. So it just, I think it just, it just hits us. And it is the oldest con continuous art form that's still um, relevant today. It was funny. I was actually talking to my wife just the other day saying that I want to start assembling the uh, classic canon of uh, Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry cartoons, specifically because that was how I received most of my classical music formation from Tom and Jerry playing at a pl piano together, or uh, at least the mouse sleeping in the piano and constantly being disrupted. Uh, and I think the first opera music I ever heard was when it was sung by Bugs Bunny. It was the Flight of the Valkyries. Actually, that was sung by Elmer Fudd. The killed a wabbit, killed a wabbit. So, and I have the same classical training that you do. And that was the thing about like being our age is you, you kind of grow up with these tunes in your head and you think, and you learn, oh, hey, that's Liszt or hey, that's uh, you know, Wagner or Bach. I don't know, Judith, did, did your parents raise you right and like, watch some Bugs Bunny cartoons with a lot of classical music? I grew up in Vienna, so that wasn't really part of our canon. <laughs> Warum nicht? Okay. <laughs> Well, okay, so now we've established what opera is, why it's great. Um, what parts of the Paralandra opera would you like to talk about? I've got a few of the, the public domain clips ready to go. I've got mm -hmm. the, the bird song, No Man May Shorten, and the overture. Now, now I do have a question. Because uh, uh, I know you reconstructed the opera, for, or you, you had a big hand in it. Um, 
because you have kind of this prelude and then you have the overture. And usually the overture is the first thing that happens. So my question is, um, why did you decide to leave this in? And was there like a postlude? Was there an anchoring kind of, I know it's not in the book, but was there like a postlude that kind of, that bookends uh, the story on earth? So that's a really good question. So as I was saying before, Swan wanted to make it in the serious music world. And this was his ticket in. Uh, he expected that this would become part of the serious music canon in Britain, that it would be performed all the time. Um, but he was known, of course, for his comic writing, his comic music. And so he decided initially to have this prelude, this opening scene, which is a kind of comic frame for an opera that's very much not comic. So the opera, you know, very much a romantic piece of music, uh, folklore, you know, traditional piece of music. But the opening scene is uh, the doctor and C.S. Lewis coming into the cottage waiting for Ransom's arrival back from Paralandra. And it's very much written in this sort of 1950s, 60s comic style that Swan was famous for. Uh, and he, he really did that in order to lure people in, to make them feel, yes, you know, this is something we recognize, and then to whisk them away into something that's completely different. And people didn't like it. People in, after the first performance, they said, this doesn't fit, this misleads people. And so actually, um, after he licked his wounds, having had very mixed reviews after this, these first performances in Oxford, Cambridge, and London from British reviewers, he regrouped with Marsh, cut the thing down to two acts, and had it reperformed in the United States. And in the two-act version, he cut the opening scene. The two-act mm. version in America was really well received, quite the opposite of the British reaction, but for the same reason. So where the Brits had said, this is old-fashioned, this is uh, eclectic, this is too melodic, the Americans all praised it for not being atonal and serial and trying to bombard you with whatever the newest avant-garde sound might be. But Swan later on, when it became clear that no matter what the critics were saying, he would not be able to perform the piece because the copyright had been sold. He came to think that it was a mistake to have cut down the, the piece. And when he had his deathbed discussions with Leon Berger, uh, who became the executor of his estate, and Jonathan Butcher, who became our conductor, Leon Berger was our Weston. Uh, he said, look, if we ever put this, if you ever manage to put this back together, please put the opening scene back in. And so that's what we did. Mm, okay. Because that's what, and and I mean, I liked it just fine, but my whole thing's like, let's get to Paralandra. It's, it's <laughs> yes. kind of like, I, I, have you seen um, Otello by mm -hmm. Verdi? Sure. Okay. Well, it starts, boom, they're on the island. They're already... So I so that's I mean so that's one thing you typically do in opera is uh, if you have a story you typically have to condense it. Now at the same time though I mean you know Verdi had probably one one of like the three greatest librettists ever in Arrigo Boito, but it is it's I, I see that that does make sense that is interesting because my I don't know about I don't know how you but David what did you think the first time you heard it because for me I'm like. I want to go to Paralandra. Yes, this is all good, but I don't know if it's necessary. Not musically. <laughs> musically, I was fine with it. And I agree. Um, and Judith is right on the money because at the time, um, it was tonal music was considered old fashioned. It was passe. Um, interestingly enough, though, this did come out the same year as Terry O'Reilly's NC, which changed everything for music. But so, but David, I'm sorry, back to you. What, what do you think the first time you heard it? What do you think of the opening? Uh, I just saw it as a contrast to what was to come. Okay. You know, we've just been throughout the Sound Planet on uh, on the podcast, and 
you want to emphasize the difference between Sulkandra and Malakandra. And I just saw the change in style as a comparison between Sulkandra and Paralandra, between Ooh. Earth and Venus. Okay. Now, an overture was originally written. It's an instrumental work that, that precedes the opera and basically is to get everybody, get in there, sit down and be quiet because this is about to start. Now, what <laughs> happened was after a while, uh, people just wanted to hear the overtures, which actually later led to the symphony. Uh, what's curious here is that the overture is so short. Um, Judith, any comments on that? Or do you think maybe it's just because, hey, we were already, we've already spent quite a bit of time with these Donish figures back on full Condra that well, let's just let's get this thing going? Because I was surprised how short it was. Because when I listened to it without the titles, I couldn't tell this is the overture. I, I think that's exactly right, John. I mean, we've already sat through a whole scene. We've already sat through the transition where Ransom comes and he has this beautiful song, how shall I describe Paralandra to you, which brings us musically into the world of Paralandra. And so now it's really just the sort of let the audience make that transition. Here we are. But it doesn't have to fulfill the function of everybody sitting down. It doesn't have to. He, he has so many melodies in this opera that he couldn't possibly fit them all into the overture, which is, also, of course, also one of the traditional functions of an overture. It introduces mm. you to all the tunes that are to come, but there are so many and they're so eclectic that actually it would have been a, a very difficult exercise and one that shows just how eclectic the whole thing is to try to put that all in the overture. So I think it's much more a transition. I'm not sure that we should really call it an overture, although that is what he titled it. All right. And one thing um, I did want to mention, those long shorts, like bum, ba -tum, da -tum, long, short, long, short, long, short. That's actually from the um, French school, and that was um, used for royalty. So anytime you hear that long, short, long, short, long, short, mm -hmm. I think it kind of, um, oh, what do I say? For, you know, foreshadows the king and the queen. And that was, I'm really quite proud of myself because that's what I thought. I thought this, uh, this sounds very regal, uh, like almost like uh, the trumpeters coming out to announce the coming of the king and the queen. That's exactly it. And actually, the only the other place where you have an overture in this opera is not after the intermission, but at the beginning of the finale. So there's actually a piece called Finale Overture, which heralds the coming in of the king and the queen. And we have these rhythms again. And there's one more thing I did want to say. It actually happens before this. I'd have to, for me, when I was listening to this um, opera for the first time, the fifth track, I think it's, let's see, Edward Weston, where, where the, um, the female voices come in and they say, 
you know, you know, this is a Edward Weston Earth Control. That is a total, uh, I think, progenitor to um, uh, Major Tom and David Bowie. And the a fact that this guy, times. yeah, and the um, <laughs> the fact that this guy did it first, I was like, whoa! Which made me wonder if Mister Bowie Jones <laughs> heard this because I mean, he was very intelligent and he could like um, like Life on Mars. Do you know what that's based on? Because you all know the song My Way mm-hmm. by oh. Sinatra. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's, yeah. So he interpolated that and it became Life on Mars, which I think is just amazing. Fascinating. So, yeah. So, but I, I just love that bit where the, uh, with, and especially when you consider this, this all prefigures, um, or this is a before space travel, I just find it really fascinating. <laughs> so many connections. It's wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so that's interesting. So the, I am not actually sure where that Edward Weston, Edward Weston comes in the original score. Swan wrote quite a bit of music for Weston and always atonal, as you've noticed, he's the villain, he gets the atonal music and sort of this, you know, 1950s sci-fi style, Flash Gordon, it's great. A lot of that was cut. And uh, as I've said before, we reconstructed some of the cut material, um, but we didn't have the time and money to reconstruct all of it. Uh, So there's, there's a number of things also with the dragon, the little pet dragon, and there's some more stuff with the spider, um, and there's quite a bit of stuff of Weston's. And so we actually we left this one piece from Weston in as an example uh, of what of what that style was like. But I think there was more of it, and I'm not entirely sure that it came at that point. So we we performed that just before the overture. We have it's the sort of transitional piece. We have uh, the two men on Earth waiting for ransom, ransom coming, describing Paralandra to them, and then we cut away to Weston in his spaceship as he goes up. Uh, to Paralandra to become the unman. And then we have the overture. So we have this sort of lurking evil just before we come into these soaring regal sounds that we've just heard, uh, foreshadowing that there will be trouble. So somebody, in fact, Leon Berger, the executive, uh, the executor of Swan's estate, compiled a list of the main influences. Um, and you can hear some of them here, but you can hear some of them later on. And I will just read them out. So we have the Supi Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky moments, the English pastoral tradition, Delius, in particular, his A Village, the whoops and flips of Poulon, the spookiness of Britain's supernatural scenes, the bluesy lyricism of Bernstein, and above all, the Greek folk song, especially its elastic rhythms, often written in 5-4 and 7-8, um, with throbbing bazooki or balalaika-like accompaniment. Add to this a few tongue-in-cheek B-movie soundtrack tremelandi and punctuations of horror, as well as a love of innocent revue song and knowing American musicals, and you get quite an unusual combination. Mm-hmm. And one thing I would add in there, although um, although this comes on later in the opera, um, it's, I heard a lot of Ray Fong Williams because there's there's like one line that's taken. I don't know if he, he I don't know if he did it consciously or not, but there's a line that's taken straight out of the oh gosh, I believe the third movement of the Dona Nobis Pacha by Ray Fon Williams, a famous choral work. Interesting. Um, yes, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, uh, but, the, but that's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Once we've had the overture, we move into uh, some discussions between Ransom and the Lady. Uh, and those are very lovely lyrical songs. The Lady is obviously a soprano, doing her soprano thing. There are a good number of duets between them. Later on, a few trios when the king comes in, but he appears quite late in the in the opera. Although I must say, he when once he appears in the third act, I think that's actually where the best music is in many ways. And then Weston comes in, and then we get quite a lot of 
quite interesting music that I don't particularly like listening to. But that's probably where John comes in because he can appreciate it where I can't. <laughs> well, I assumed we weren't meant to like it particularly. No, no, indeed, you're right. Um, and there's a chorus that sort of functions like a Greek chorus commenting on the action. Uh, and that already starts with this Western piece that comes just before the overture um, and then carries on whenever there are key moments in the play, uh, in the in the opera, uh, when decisions have to be made and they comment on on the decisions musically. But I don't think we have any of those in our selections. Is that right? So we have uh, No Man May Shorten the Way. And what's the other one? Birdsong? Uh, Birdsong. Birdsong. Oh, yeah. So that's a really good example of the ladies' style. And Birdsong is what happens next in the opera from the three selections that we have. That's right. that so much oh, so beautiful <laughs> that is beautiful just beautiful yeah that, you know that if the i think you mentioned william berger but i mean if the rights to that were ever like put out i don't you know i, I know a lot of like voice students who would like perform that recitals and absolutely and whatnot there i mean that's it's it's, it's gorgeous i mean Sorry. But uh, Judith, you have a, you have a closer connection to this than I do. What do you what, what are your comments? And maybe I can yeah. piggyback. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I think this would be a beautiful recital piece. Uh, there are several of those actually, and I think it shows so clearly that you know Swan is not using the old-fashioned lyrical style uh, naively or unthinkingly. He's using it because we are in, in a sense, a different and more archaic world than our own. And we're in a different and more archaic musical world than our own in his time. And he does it so beautifully. And in fact, if you'd like, I can read you just what uh, the New Yorker in a two and a half column review uh, said about it, which fits very well to this piece. Nowadays, when every avant-garde composer's ambition seems to be to shatter his auditor's eardrums with the most original and progressive noise ever created, it is a pleasure to hear a work that is modestly written merely to elicit an emotional response from an audience. Such a work as Swan's opera, Paralandra. It is a genuine opera with a very serious plot, and it is full of arias and choruses and has a deft score. It is unashamedly old-fashioned. It represents the Hendel-Mendelssohn tradition, which is the tradition of most unselfconscious British music. A few dissonances appear from time to time to designate evil, but most of it is as innocent and sincere as Paralandra itself. Wow, that's, oh, that's beautiful. That's perfect. <laughs> well, that's perfect too. No, I, I, I agree. 
Yeah. And that's the thing, I think, there's a huge political battle as to what music is now, but that's one of the things because the emotional um, content of most atonal music, I find to be a bit limited. I mean, I love it, don't get me wrong, but it's, it is difficult to, to show that kind of innocence and beauty with like 12-tone music. And and just just in in the bird song when when I listen to it I I it puts me in mind of of the green lady and the animals just following her naturally building up because in this you have that same little that little tweeting motif slowly build up uh, as as the, as the piece goes on it just it communicates a, a you know an Edenic prelapsian world of harmony um, and uh, and and unity yeah. Absolutely. And I must say, I mean, we have to give a good deal of credit to Max Saunders, the orchestrator, who was Swan's regular orchestrator, but he really comes into his own here, transposing Swan's piano score to a 35-piece orchestra. I think it's exquisitely done. And, and by the way, and the, the recording, I meant to say, um, Judith, is excellent. I mean, I was very happy because when David said, oh, there's a opera recording I'm like okay and the first time I was like oh this is nice so but you've got some wonderful musicians and um, singers well of course that includes the singers as well but it is it is a wonderful performance and I did have a question about that but you answered it in the first half thank you or the, or the orchestration there thank you. okay well, let's see no man may shorten would be the would be the next tune and uh, Judith it seems like you have a little bit more insight to this than I do because my 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 observation is probably incorrect. So why don't you maybe talk about this first? Because <laughs> you mentioned the Greek you mentioned the Greek song earlier, which I but go ahead. Yeah. So I mean, uh, Swan had Greek heritage, uh, and he liked he liked letting that flow into his music. It became a sort of signature uh, of his otherwise very English music. Um, but here, I think the the dominant influence is the is the English boys' choir and and choral tradition. Um, and we had it performed actually by, uh, one of the boys from one of Oxford's, um, college choirs. And we had him perform it also in a chapel to just a single candle up in the pulpit. And it was absolutely transporting. Uh, the interesting thing about this piece is that it's not at all uh, in the book. So this is the scene that I talked about earlier where um, Marsh, the librettist, diverges most significantly from Lewis's story because Marsh was a pacifist. And so it was a real struggle for him to come to terms with the idea that uh, Ransom had to fight Weston physically. And so we have this, we have this sequence of songs about uh, Ransom struggles with the idea that he has to fight Weston physically. And he does, and he kills him. And then he feels uh, like Elijah after the after Mount Horeb and the prophets of Baal. He feels like he wants to die. Uh, he, he doesn't know what he has done. He doesn't know how to go on from there. And then this elder, this angel, appears to him and says, no man may shorten the way to Calvary. Uh, and it's this transporting moment in the opera but um, but entirely original to the opera as opposed to the book. And here it is. Oh. 
I have to say, I had a quick question. Does, does that young man have perfect pitch or does he? Do you know? <laughs> Not quite. Okay. Because um, I have to say, he was pretty in tune when that piano kicked back in. And that's a dicey thing for yeah. any singer, much <laughs> less a child. So like I said, the, the performance is wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so this one, this was actually the song that uh, Leon Berger played when he came to the C.S. Lewis Society and played us a few excerpts when he talked about this opera. And it was our own reaction to it that made us decide we had to put this thing on. And one of the people who was most influential in helping us uh, realize that ambition, uh, Jennifer Swift, who was a very longstanding member of the C.S. Lewis Society, died of cancer shortly thereafter. So we had the boy come and sing at her funeral that song, and it was beautiful. Well, I, one thing I would say, I mean, I guess uh, kind of closing uh, remarks on the opera. I mean, it is wonderful. And I do think, and uh, uh, Judith had mentioned the canon earlier, the, or the opera canon, which by the way, I mean, I please, when we say canon, don't think that this is state. The canon is always open to adding more pieces. I think that's, but uh, uh, Judith, you'd probably back me up here. After you've seen opera for about 10, 15 years regularly, you've seen a lot of what you're going to see. I mean, nothing against Mozart and, you know, uh, you know, Puccini and Verdi and Wagner, but um, they, they, they recycle a lot of the same stuff. <laughs> but because I looked it up, the um, I, and if you have something to add here, uh, Judith, that'd be great. But but uh, I was looking through operas from the 1950s. The only one I can find from the 50s as part of the canon would be Candide by Bernstein, which is an operetta and which actually got premiered on Broadway, um, you know, Bernstein for West Side Story. And then after this, it would have to be 1976's I Stand on the Beach by Philip Blass. And there aren't really any operas from the 60s other than the ones I mentioned prior, um, the Barbers, uh, Antony and Cleopatra, and, uh, and, and Peter. Well, The Diary of a Mad King, I don't think would really qualify as an opera. But Judith, do you have anything to say about that? Because it sounds like you've heard a lot of it over the years. No, I don't really. And I mean, Candide is such an interesting work because it's nearly a crossover to the musical, right? I mean, it's in the same crossover tradition as Sweeney Todd and almost Les Miserables, these through composed musicals that almost approximate opera. Um, and no, I don't, I'm not historically trained enough to know what was happening in the 50s and 60s, why opera was just not a genre that composers naturally went to. Well, there are a lot of operas composed. It's just not a lot have, have really stayed in the canon. Because um, from what I've looked at, like Minotti, like uh, Amal and the Night Visitors, that was the first television opera. Oh, that opera. was wonderful, though. Right. So that's, I mean, and there are some that have, but as far as ones that have, like, stayed in the canon, um, and, there are not, and by the way, just because it's not in the canon, it doesn't does not mean it's a bad opera. It just means we just, we don't know it and it hasn't been performed enough. Uh, because like you said... Uh, and people always ask, like, do you write, you know, symphonies and operas? And I, and I don't because they're expensive. I mean, and unless you're independently wealthy, you can hire out these, you know, musicians for the time it takes to learn your music. It just costs too much money for most people. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, John, if you look at if you look at the sort of the canon of modern opera, do you think that there would be a place for Paralandra in it? Oh, I think so. I would. I mean, I think I think it, I think there would be because there was. 
well, here's the thing. You've heard of uh, Turando by <laughs> Puccini, right? Have you seen Turando? I have actually in oh. a Roman amphitheater by the sea in Israel. It was remarkable. Okay, oh, well, I saw it here in Costa Mesa. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, here's the thing, because that came out the same year as Wozzeck by Berg. Have you heard that? Yes. Okay. And the thing was, when Puccini died, he was very depressed because he was like, again, old fuddy-duddy, has been. And, and when they, when you looked at those two operas back in the time, I think that was like 30, oh gosh, like 36, 37, I believe. I could be, I could be off on those dates though. Um, everybody would have said, between these two operas, Berg is the one that has a future and no one's going to listen to Puccini again. Wow. Wow. And so the thing is, and, and the, the, the Berg opera is excellent and Lulu is excellent. He, he is an incomplete opera. But the thing is, Wozzeck is an excellent opera, but and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Judith, you, you have seen it? I've never seen it. it. See, I've only heard it. I've never seen that okay. one. And I've had the opportunity to see it, and I have not taken the opportunity. And I think Ooh, that's okay. dispositive of something, uh, namely wow. my ignorance of difficult opera. Well, it's not. It's also depressing, though. It's very I depressing. Mean, it, is, it is depressing as H-E-double-L. I'm talking like this. It's like the Requiem of requiem for a Dream of Opera. I mean, oh that, and gosh. Lulu. Oh. I mean, if you've seen it, I mean, you know, Wozzeck is about a man that gets beaten down to nothing and Lulu's about a woman that tears into everything and you know, tears everything else into nothing. I mean, they're wonderful operas, but they're so, the music's, the music's difficult, although I do like it and I think it's more accessible than some of the other atonal stuff. As far as the, the canon, I think there's always, there's, always, there's always room for more and I think that is one nice thing is that they are, I mean, even like LA Opera who has always been pretty risk averse, they are doing some different stuff now, like in their smaller Red Cat Theater over here on the West Coast. Um, I know that Europe is much more experimental and you get a lot cooler operas than we oh. do. And a lot of our, like a lot of operas by, you know, uh, Glass and Adams, I know they get played over there first before they get played here, or they get, they definitely get more performances over there. So that is one thing in which like the American opera going public is, can be a little bit limited because they all want to hear Puccini. They all want to hear Mozart and think, okay, what about, you know, this, this new one by, um, or this rediscovered one by C.S. Lewis. I think there, I do think there's, there's room for it. If anything, you already have this baked in uh, fan base with Lewis, or even if you tied into Narnia, Hey, this is the guy that wrote Narnia. Some people I think would at least be interested because the nice thing about the fantasy sci-fi world is they're, they're game to trying stuff that's different. And I don't know what your experience has been either of you, but I, I, that's always what it's always been my feeling. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I would agree with that. And actually, that's probably a good uh, a good time to read you what Swan wrote about it. Uh, just one sentence in one of his late writings, he said, I think of Paralandra with a great sense of yearning. There is a feeling of loss to be involved in such a huge drama and then find it not being performed all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, well, yeah, because writing these things, I mean, it takes some time. Uh, how long did it take him to compose this? I'm guessing a couple of years. A few years, yeah. Yeah. And then and he didn't orchestrate it, so that was handed off to somebody else. But still, it's it's a tremendous amount of work because, I mean, in my opinion, and I, I'd like to meet your both your perspectives, I do think opera is the highest form of art we can attain as humans. As far as the, the level of training that, that goes across everything, because it's not just, I mean, yeah, it's the music and the musicians, but it's also the costuming and the staging and the special effects. And there's so much that goes into it. And so much of, uh, like say like what even Wagner wanted to do, he couldn't do back in his day. Like I've never seen, actually I haven't seen any of the ring, unfortunately. I've seen Wagner, but not any of the ring. But I think it's like, I think it's good to Damodum, like uh, the dragon shows up. 
and, and the big question is, okay, how, how bad is the dragon going to be? And so usually it could be a puppet or it's like, you know, a piece of cardboard. So like years ago, um, there was a chance. It, it fell through, though. Um, ILM was going was gonna, to um, design uh, a ring to be performed in L.A. Nice. But it never, it never happened. I mean, it's so expensive. It's so ridiculously expensive. Yeah, and that's the thing, yeah, because opera companies, friends, they do not make, I mean, they're lucky if they break even. Going into the black is like a blessing, you know, so that's why you see all the you know, uh, benefactors in those uh, programs. It would actually be really interesting to see uh, a, mo- uh, a big production company that does movies to do a movie adaptation of, I mean, some of these pieces in general. Uh, you know, th- there's, there's very often the conversion of regular musicals like Les Miserables to a movie uh, and so they they get to have all of the deep pockets of those production companies uh, to to really pour into the sets it would be very interesting to see something like an opera done in that fashion no i mean that's true but on the other hand i think so much of the experience of opera is being in the same space and that goes mm. all the way to sort of the sound the manipulation of the air with the sound Operatic voices, as I was saying before, are trained to sing without amplification in large opera houses. That kind of sound would not work well on film where you don't need the projection. But the projection mm-hmm. and the sort of being enveloped in it all is really what makes the experience. So I don't know how well it would work to translate the big operas onto screen without a major rethink of what kind of emotional impact they're meant to make, which is, of course, what they did with Les Miserables, um, mm-hmm. where they aimed for very different emotional impact than the musical, sure. where so much depends on seeing, you know, that empty stage with that one person on it, solitary, mm-hmm. in the middle of the dark. You can't do that sort of thing on film, and so you have these extreme close-ups, extreme sort of raw emotion. Too close. Um, too close, absolutely. Like too Hugh close. Jackman's nose hairs. No, exactly, exactly. And you lose the sort of doubleness of the theatre of the you know, extreme intimacy and the extreme formality, which really have to exist side by side. And that's so important in opera as well. I think that formality and intimacy kind of become one. Uh, and that's just not how movies work, not in the same way. And I, I do agree. And she's, she is correct. You know, operas do not come at you from 16 different speakers surrounding you. But at the same time, there are some excellent adaptations. Uh, in fact, um, David, well, actually both of you, uh, but David, one of your countrymen, do you know Powell and Presser? You know the director's? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the Red Shoes. Oh, okay. The, uh, for the Death of Colonel Blimp. You don't know those films? Nope. But they did an excellent adaptation of The Tales of Hoffman by Offenbach, which is really, really good. It is Martin Scorsese and George Romero's favorite film of all time. Oh. They both love it. Yeah. And, but you could tell, I mean, but, but Judith is right, though. It's, it's not the way you'd experience it in an opera house, but it is amazing in its, in its own right. Also, um, I've seen both versions of it, and I do think The Death of Klinghoffer by John Adams is actually better as a film than as an opera. <laughs> I think it works dramatically, worked a little bit better for me there. But, but she's right, you, you know, because right, to just stick the camera on the stage and just let it record is, is, a, is a little bit different because, as she mentioned, the, the, in theater experience with live musicians, just it, you, you can't replace it with the with the movie, with the movie. But at the same time, there there are good adaptations, but um, they are few and far between. Hmm. Well, we're nearing the end of our time, so how do you how would you like to put a bow on this? Do you have any final thoughts about 
the opera in general, the music in particular. David, I cannot thank you enough for sending me the um, the CD. I, I thoroughly enjoy it. The next thing I would really like to get is the score. So <laughs> that's what I would just say. And oh, and I did want to say, well, oh, yeah, thanks, Judith. Okay, yeah, she's showing me a handwritten score there. She's making me jealous. Um, so, and so, oh, and I forgot to mention this um, last time, but I have composed. Um, a work I have a chamber I have a chamber work for the Pilgrims of Regress and I have put a tone poem for Out of the Silent Planet so um, I need to get those kind of reassembled and out there but um, it's mm-hmm. wonderful it's, it's wonderful beautiful music and C.S. Lewis uh, like I said does inspire quite a bit and I'm still re- I haven't followed up on um, the Screw Tape Letters Oratorio yet but it's on my to do list and what would you say, Judith? You have the you probably have a cool quote from Swan there or Berger. So what do you got? <laughs> I don't have any more quotes for you, um, but I do. I do think I do think that it is a marvelous piece of work. I think it has you know big melodies, beautiful choruses, um, beautiful recital pieces, and I would very much love to see it done properly. Uh, we had to we had to fill in so much with narration that should be full of music and. Nobody since 1964 has heard the full thing, and that's a uh, that's that's remarkable. I think we should uh, we should we should try to have the whole thing reconstructed and performed. I agree. I did have a quick question: Is the last piece the last piece of the opera? The because it's the king, because it's, it's such a curious ending. Go your ways, my children, rather than farewell ransom, which. Uh, yes, it is. It's the final piece of the opera, and it's a sort of it is very much a sort of coda denouement leading people back into the ordinary world. Um, obviously, as we said before, they spend quite a swan spends quite a bit of energy getting us to this world, taking us from where we are uh, in England and bringing us there. And I think he gave a bit of thought to how to bring people back there and back again, as Tolkien would have said, um, <laughs> into this world and back out of it. And so he has this very simple, quite short, quite prosaic uh, dismissal by the king of all the animals, which in a sense is also a dismissal of us as the audience. So we have the beautiful, bittersweet, eschatological farewell ransom with its sort of foreshadowing of the the parting is the bitter rind of a fruit whose core is sweet. And when we meet again, that will be the sweet core of this fruit whose bitter rind we are tasting now. Uh, but then, you know, from that high point, he he kind of sends us away with this very simple piece that ends the whole thing. Professor Mara Wolf, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, where can people go to find out more about you and send offers of help and money in bringing this opera back to the stage? <laughs> so, well, well, I can't. Fu- you funded this before, Judith. You go. Uh, <laughs> I funded this before. <laughs> in fact, as I said, T. S. Eliot partly funded it. Um, his his widows or his trust. Um, provided some of the money, as did Francis Warner, who is a poet uh, and Lewis's last graduate student. Um, but you can reach me. Uh, my email address is very easy to find on Google, and I am at my email address, so that's a very easy way of getting in touch with me. Uh, no, okay, and I'm also okay. And that's probably the best way to get a hold of me too. I'm at Santa Ana College, which is here in Southern California. If you just type my name in John Mar and Google that, you'll find me. Um, and I'm sorry to say, I have a very like social media presence i don't you know uh i don't have instagram or tiktok or anything like that so i'm it's not which is actually not very good for a composer or a musician but i'd rather practice and write so understandable yeah yeah <laughs>
Well, thanks again to my two guests for coming on the show today, Professor Judith Wolf and John Ma. And thanks to our audio engineer, Taylor Schroll, for editing this episode, which was recorded in two halves. And thanks to our listeners, patron supporters, and especially our top tier supporters, Matt 1, Matt 2. We are still waiting for Matt 3. Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for all of our listeners every week on Tuesday, all the prayer requests on our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, maybe see what operas are playing locally in your area. And join us next time. When we'll continue to go further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.